Hey, you're listening to The Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and so want to make Him the centre of our lives, our community and our world. We're going to learn how to do that right now as we sit down and unpack Sunday's sermon. Welcome to a new season in some ways of banter yeah. as we're hopping into the books of one and two, depending on if you want to be a, a you know, modern day um, Christian or if you want to be more of a faithful Jew, the book of Samuel as one single sort of story. Um, yeah, it's Mitch, a, a, a really kind of fascinating story of Saul and Samuel, obviously, and then ultimately David as in the lead up to Christmas. Um, you spoke a little bit on two Sundays ago about why you had sort of you know chosen some of those themes as David's story echoing Jesus and a lot of those themes um, but what is it for you that you just find as a sort of you know 30,000 foot level uh, really striking about the you know the book of Samuel <laughs> yeah I think because it's set in a period of transition mm. uh, I've always been fascinated by transition hence mm. why I liked going through the book of Jeremiah mm. and seeing how God yeah, it uses very ordinary people to bring about quite major changes. Mm. And Samuel yeah, really sets it up. It's mm. set in that time period of the judges. As I mentioned in the service, in the older Hebrew Bible, there was no Ruth in between Judges yeah. and Samuel. You just read straight through Judges and then into Samuel. And so yeah. the time of Samuel possibly might have been just after the time of Samson because mm. the Philistines are quite active in the time of Samson the judge strong judge yeah 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 <laughs> and yeah you read the rest of Judges and it's a pretty horrific bleak picture yeah. of what Israel is like and so they're in the midst of this bleakness where we're told everyone's doing what they feel is right in their own eyes because there's no king yeah and here we get the transition to change that and mm. it starts off with this barren woman from yeah a non-elite family mm. uh, yeah um, we introduced to uh, uh, what's his name um, Elkanah it's had a mind blank there. Elkanah uh, and Hannah that's, uh, yeah, yeah. that's how you're <laughs> um, you're introduced to Elkanah who yeah like he has a good genealogy which sets him up as like yeah. a, a good like he has a long lineage which yeah. is what they're doing but he's not anyone that special they come mm. from Ephraim each year to offer sacrifices and his barren wife who was his favoured wife mm. who can't have kids and because Elkanah needs to have kids to keep his genealogy alive this mm. interesting this battle between these two rival wives is the yeah. catalyst for Israel's transformation and so yeah, it's a little bit like Hannah's story mirroring um, Mary's Mary's obviously not barren but virgin no. but yeah, yeah you got this lowly woman who yeah, really gets chosen by God. Yeah. And nothing special of her own. Mm. And, see, and you see these, those parallels there with those two women. Mm. With Samuel, to an extent, he grows in wisdom, like yeah. Jesus does. And obviously, David pointing to Jesus. So there's just a lot in there that you can see the life and ministry, particularly around David's life yeah. of Jesus. Like David goes into exile yeah. a couple of times, Jesus. So does that. Um, David's described as a man after God's own heart in many ways. Jesus has never given that title, but yeah. he embodies that properly. He doesn't commit any sin. He is the king that Israel's supposed to have. 
Yeah. And yeah, so he's sort of David, sort of Solomon, all these mixed um, yeah. things, Samuel, all, all, everything just sort of mixed in there. Yeah. And I mean, uh, when we get to this point in the story of um, Hannah being barren, we're sort of, you know, all the way through the book of Genesis seeing these stories of barren mm. women, barren mothers who, you know, finally do have children. And this idea of a lot of the time, the, you know, the second born coming through and stuff mm. and a lot of that we see. Um, in funnily enough, when you kind of jump forward to Jesus for the first time, this idea of Elizabeth obviously falling pregnant first with John the Baptist and then, you know, with, with Mary falling pregnant with Jesus. It, it seems to be the first time in the story where there's, you know, these two women with two sons, but there is um, equanimity mm. and um, maybe subservience, I guess is the right word, but willingness to, yeah. you know, sort of um, give over, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, John the Baptist saying, you know, I, I, you know, become less so he can become greater, you know, I'm preparing the way for him. It's really interesting that it really, even the way in which the animosity and the jealousy and the bitterness that we've seen in all of the, you know, Old Testament stories of, of women who are barren, of women who, you know, or even the younger sons sort of, you know, always having that tension and that rivalry is suddenly you know, sort of seen as this really perfect sort of mutuality and, and, and servant-hearted mm. um, servant sort of, you, you know, back mm. and forth relationship, which is really interesting as well. It's something that we can kind of miss the beauty of that story, the way that even when Mary comes in, you know, and sees Elizabeth, you know, John jumps for joy mm. in her womb. There seems to just be this joy and peace, which is really fascinating just is, in contrast yeah. that we can kind of miss in, in yeah. any, you know, just um, singular reading of that story. Mm. And then so we see um, Hannah obviously being a foreshadowing of with this song the entire story of uh, Samuel. Did you want to yeah pull out parts of that? Did you want to read the yeah. whole thing for us? Um, I will do last a little summary yeah. of it and just some of the big themes. So yeah, one Samuel chapter one verse one sets up um, yeah this man Elkanah. This happens a couple of times. You get introduced to a person. Mm. It happens with um. Um, Saul's father Kish gets mm. this big long genealogy it sort of sets up that this is like a change that something is happening yeah. so as a reader you're prepared you're like hmm yeah. here is a man with a long genealogy from this place yeah. so yeah as we said before Elkanah has these two wives Hannah and Paniah and we're just told Paniah had children but Hannah had none and so and that's all that really needs to be said mm -hmm. there's a lot of studies out there on rival wives yeah and in some parts of the middle east they still have rival wives sure today so yeah. it's yeah and quite, in some places in kansas <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's quite it's quite <laughs> a well-known format and it never ends well yeah it's yeah. very rare to have a rival wife where there's not tension I mean, and bitterness em and i spent a lot of time getting into sister wives on tlc many <sighs> moons ago you know before we were married and yeah you just see these mormon families with multiple wives it never seems to end well like there's inevitably jealousy when yeah. there's more than one wife because we're human right and <laughs> yeah. i think there is yeah sort of something in that which seems to be problematic from yeah. the get-go and i guess too for well, we're not told a whole lot of details, but Hannah is definitely loved, the loved one. Mm. She's favoured. That's what Hannah means, the favoured yeah. one. Yeah. And Penai <laughs> That's her literal name. Is, is not. Like, yeah. She is just a baby-producing yeah. machine, essentially. Yeah. That's her role, is to give Elkanah children. And yeah. so in a society that valued how many babies you could pop out, 
Like that's where her worth is found. So even though her husband doesn't love her like mm. Hannah or she has the kids, mm. Hannah does not. And so it sets yeah, the 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 narrative ahead for this um these two rival wives uh, in some ways playing out like a cosmic battle. Yeah. I guess there's one way of looking at it of yeah. how Israel was supposed to be the favoured wife. Israel was supposed to be Hannah and not meant to be barren but fruitful. And yeah. here is the nation at a crossroads. They're yeah. completely disintegrating. Mm. There's, yeah, we're told a couple of chapters later when Yahweh first speaks to Samuel that voices from Yahweh were rare at that time. Sure. We've got Eli, who's the head honcho high priest who can't even recognize when someone's praying. Yeah. And there's like this idea of spiritual blindness. He yeah. is actually, Eli is actually blind towards yeah. the end. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's just like, this is where the nation of Israel's at. It's meant mm. to be the favored, blessed nation, but in fact, it's barren. And like, Isaiah picks up on this yeah. language. Like, yeah, I sing, oh, barren woman. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. And I said, this is kind of, battle between these two peasant women yeah. actually is setting up the scene for huge cosmic things of what God's going to do. And so when Hannah does sing her song, when she has um, Samuel, yeah, yeah, it's really around her rival, a lot of it. But we see it goes in so much bigger detail. It's about um, the the proud being brought low yeah. and the lowly lifted up, which yeah. is a theme throughout Samuel. Is yeah. And it starts here with the, the clash of these family the non-elite family and the elite family yeah. and yeah with this with Samuel being born he actually is the catalyst for toppling Eli's family yeah Eli and his two corrupt sons and that theme continues out yeah and Samuel eventually have two sons who yeah. also end up being corrupt and need to be replaced yeah. by Saul Saul yeah, ends yeah, up yeah. being corrupt and needs to be replaced by another son David and so there's this theme throughout of the proud being brought low the lowly lifted up yeah and that god's yeah in the midst of all that and yeah so, yeah that's kind of what the opening two chapters are yeah. doing for us setting up the themes that we're about to encounter yeah throughout the book which yeah start off with just a, like i said for a battle between two rival wives has so much more deeper theological yeah. significance for sure for sure i mean it you know kind of uh, i think all the way back to cain and abel as you know mm. the first two battling brothers and then you know it seems that pretty much every single <laughs> you know um, matriarch in in that you know abrahamic line of the you know main patriarchs has these battling wives as mm. well or you know for obviously sarah and hagar sort of yeah. wife and maidservant but it's this idea right yeah. And it is kind of fascinating the way that this is presented because there's so many echoes. And mm. even, you know, as you're talking about the priest who has two rebellious sons, yeah. you know, we've seen that all the way back, you know, with Aaron and, you know, the first mm, high mm, priest mm, mm, at Nadab and Abihu. And yep. we're seeing once again that this idea of two rebellious sons yeah. time and time again keeps on being echoed. So obviously throughout this series, we are going to be focusing a lot more in later weeks on David's story. Yep. Um, but David's not in this part of the no. story. And one thing that's really interesting is that um, at this point, Samuel sort of is the archetypal hero at this mm. moment. So as we're sort of just at this point of the story and David is like yet to yeah. s enter stage, what can we see from the archetypal priest yeah. of Samuel who's, you know, is, is yeah. a faithful mm. priest and someone who's seen to also be after God's own heart in a lot of yeah. ways? What so, can we learn about him? So it's really interesting when... Um when Hannah's praying her heart out mm. and 
she says, um, let me just find the passage here. Here we go. So this is um, verse 11. She makes his vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Mm. Now, she never uses the word Nazarite, but that's a Nazarite vow. Mm. And so as a reader of Samuel, if we've just read Judges, <laughs> Sam's in the back of our mind, oh, hang on. The Nazarene vow didn't work out so yeah, well. Yeah, like, wait a minute. I also remember encountering a barren woman <laughs> who has a son. That's a Nazarite. Yeah. yeah, that really didn't go down too well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's sort of, this is what the Bible does, picks up on things, but sort of twists them around. Yeah. And yeah, Samuel changes that. And I think, uh, yeah, it's... Often images in kids' Bibles just have Samuel as this older man. But yeah, yeah. he would have had this ridiculously yeah. long set of hair, this yeah. beard. He, he is set apart to be holy completely. He does what Samson should have been like. Yeah. And so Samuel is the what they call the final judge slash sort of prophet. He, he is a judge in like yeah. that sense of the word, like the book of Judges. He leads yeah. Israel in a way as a leader, but he's not king. Mm-hmm. And that's where he's at that crossroads. He's helped Samuel helps bring in mm. the monarchy. And yeah. So Alan, too, like thinking about Jesus. Well, Jesus and Matthew. It's a strange reference where Matthew says about you know they move after they flee from Mary and Joseph flee from Egypt. They head back. Yeah. Um, and then they're like, oh, they worry about the high priest. So they go settle in Nazareth. Then it's like, so scriptures fulfilled. He will be shall be called a Nazareth. And you're like, what? Like, is, is what, what's that referring to? No one's really sure, but. Seems a part of it's like literally living in the town of Nazareth makes him a Nazarite, but also the sense Jesus is set apart and yeah. holy, and his whole life yeah. is set up for service to sure. Yahweh. Like normally, a Nazarite vow is just a temporary vow you did sure. for a period to yeah. yeah give service to to Yahweh, yeah. and then you ended it. But Samuel's yeah. whole life is to lead the people in holiness, mm. and yeah, and then in a, in that sense. He becomes the replacement for Hophni and Phineas, who, and it's when we first introduced to Eli while Hannah's praying, <laughs> we're told here Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. Mm. It's like a subtle little reference, almost like he's acting like a king. Yeah. Like he's, he's and we're told later on he's a big fat dude. Yeah. Who acts, actually, that's how he dies, actually. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. He becomes, kavod yeah. means it's a play on words in, in, um, Hebrew can mean like glory or weighty. And mm. so the, the glory of Yahweh departs when they're defeated um, by the Philistines. And then mm. um, Eli's so shocked he's, he's because he's so weighty. Like yeah. there's a play on like, come on, the glory is departed yeah. and heavy Eli yeah. falls and breaks his neck. So. Well, you're kind of given a bit of a clue even yeah. to why he's so fat because it yes. kind of says that him and his sons kind of got all the choice parts of the yes. sacrificial meats for themselves. Yeah. So they're, they're eating the fattiest yes. part of the meats, which they're not supposed to. The rule is that you're supposed to kind of stick a, a stick yeah. in and, and pull out the meat that comes out, but they're yeah. kind of taking for themselves, which is interesting even in not relying on God's provision, mm. but sort of taking by their own hand. Yeah. And, you know, that ends up leading to him being overweight. And yeah, yeah seems yeah, to what... have something there. With him falling, there's some interesting stuff there, obviously, mm. with echoing sort of Hannah's song of, yes. the, you know, that the, you know, the, the pride, prideful yeah. or the powerful being fallen, um, but also an echo of his neck is broken, yeah. which seems like an interesting mm. sort of little side note to yeah. add. Um, but that is then echoed on later in Samuel, right? 
Um, so I'm just thinking this. about the um, Goliath being yeah, beheaded yeah, yeah. and getting cut off, yeah. and even that idea of the Genesis three fifteen like crushing the serpent's, serpent's head. head. Yeah, yeah. Because I know that Phineas, the like the literal translation of his name means serpent's mouth. So yeah. even like his son is kind of being <laughs> set up as like a serpent-like figure. Yeah. There's like Whoa. this idea of you know there's there's yeah. this this evil this this sort of serpent-like feature and his head needing to be kind of, kind of crushed off. in a way, yeah. cut off in that's that really. way. Well, what's interesting is Phineas 1.0 in... Oh, what book is it? I've forgotten now. Can't be Deuteronomy. Must be um Numbers, where the Moabite women yeah. are there, and he gets the spear and, like, shoves yeah. the spear through the Israelite man and the Moabite who are sleeping together. Yeah. Now, here's Phineas 2.0, sleeping yeah. with women around the sanctuary. He's yeah. transformed Shiloh, which is meant to be the sanctuary for Yahweh, into just a... Uh, a Canaanite sort of um, sex cult yeah. because that's what would happen with a lot of like Canaanite religions is you would sleep with a shrine prostitute to get the favour mm. of the gods and so yeah. we're seeing here like even Phineas he's doing the complete opposite of what his original name say yeah. would be and because they're priests they would be related somehow yeah, yeah, there'd yeah. be some there'd be a direct yeah, yeah ancestral yeah. link there yeah um, no, because I remember we were thinking at one point about calling George Phineas because we liked the name. And then it's like, it means oracle or serpent's mouth. We're like, hmm, maybe not. I don't like, know. Depending on which Phineas you're naming after. You know, yeah, exactly. that. yeah, 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 that's it. That's but it. Um, but I think even, uh, yeah, obviously, you know, not not to jump into it, but even that idea of which you'll probably speak about this Sunday, the the Dagon and the head falling off and stuff. Mm. We see this this crushing again and again and yes. again, of so, which is kind of like bringing us this foreshadowing of a messianic figure yeah. who is going to come and and and, and destroy this evil head. in a yeah. way. Um, so in Samuel, um, what do we see him foreshadow, or how are other ways in which we see him foreshadowing Jesus throughout these first sort of few chapters? Um, the growing in wisdom, that's quite, um, I just got to find where it is. But um, yeah, as Samuel is given like a linen ephod, like yeah. a priestly garment, and there he is ministering before. And we're told that he's... Um, yeah, it says this is um, 1 Samuel 2, 21. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth and three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And so there's this sort of implication that Samuel is growing. Like Jesus yeah. grew in wisdom yes. by service. And yeah. so when we encounter Jesus um, as a child in Luke's gospel, there he is as a boy yeah. in the temple teaching. He, Samuel... Um, it would have been intense for the poor little kid when he's given that um, voice from like God, that message yeah. about the destruction of Eli and his whole household. There's this sense of obedience to the call of God, even mm. if it would be quite costly. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that. I always just sort of like, oh, yeah, that's a nice little story, little Samuel running up and getting confused and hearing the voice. But actually think about it. It had been pretty terrifying to tell essentially your new adopted dad yeah a better word they're like hey like god's gonna wipe you out and yeah, your yeah, sons yeah and your lineage and yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 who's this kid <laughs> who did i just adopt yeah so so there's you see some of that too like this idea of yeah samuel an obedient little boy who's serving god before yeah him and following even quite yeah wouldn't want to push the analogy too hard but like a costly call yeah just sure. like Jesus did. Yeah. And, yeah. And even when Mary and Joseph find Jesus, like, hey, you know, this is where I should be in my yeah, father's yeah. house. And you see, this is where Samuel is serving. He's given yeah. his life. Well, yeah. 
to serving in the house oh. of the Lord. I mean, it, like that's the whole idea. Hannah dedicates him from yep. the you know very first moment. If you give me a son, I'll, I'll give him to you. Kind of yep. thing. There is that. Yeah, from the very outset, his sort of destiny yes. is is sealed in, in mm. a large way. So then, with this idea, we've got uh, obviously these these few links and I think it might be helpful for people just if we zoomed out for a second and see the way in which God's chosen people Mm. are changing so far throughout the story of the Bible so obviously at the very beginning we have a you know somewhat patriarchal system where people of such a such as an Adam or an Abraham are kind of playing both roles of Mm. both priests and kings in Mm. some ways and then obviously we get to you know the story of Moses and throughout those stories it sort of changes a bit from a priestly king and kind of becomes a bit more focused on the priestly side in a lot of ways with Aaron being the high priest and then as we then transition from priest king to more so focusing on priest into Joshua how would you sort of describe that transition there because Joshua isn't just a priest yeah, or even yeah, Joshua is kind of like a prophetic figure. Yeah, leader like Moses. Yeah, because he sort of doesn't receive new Torah. Yeah, but he they do covenant renewals. Yeah, and like Joshua predicts what would happen to the Israelites that they yeah. would fail, and they go, yeah, you know, we're going to hold on to this. And Joshua, like, nah, you won't. Yeah, <laughs> going to fail hardcore. Yeah, so there's that yeah. kind of Mo- Moses succession. Yeah, prophetic. Yeah, voice voice mouth for for Yahweh. Yeah, these people because Joshua definitely seems to be this this new or this this different sort of um, role to Moses in which he mm. definitely is, has priestly duties and yeah. responsibilities, but he's also like a military yeah, leader, leader a lot yes. more than seems to have been yeah. previously. And we have interestingly we see that a bit with Abraham mm. being sort of a military leader who kind of wins battles successfully, and then we get to Joshua and he kind of seems like a, a proto judge in some yes. ways, kind of moving into so, that yeah. transition. Uh, which makes sense because the next book is then obviously Judges yeah. and we, we see that. So then how would you sort of describe then we've, we've kind of moved from kind of a, a kingly priest yeah. to more of a priest to a priestly judge yes. to now a judge in, mm. in a lot of ways. So when we get to the book of Samuel, what, what what's kind of going on there? What would you say that yeah, next transition so is? Seeing, um, so that, that I guess going back to that ending of Judges, which is yeah. deliberate, that not having a king, that's yeah. causing big problems. And so now we're getting introduced to how that's going to get solved. So Samuel takes on that role as, in many ways he, because he's adopted into sort of Eli's household, he yeah. takes on that priestly role, especially as a Nazarite. That yeah. Becomes, so he's sort of a priestly judge, prophet, pro- prophetic figure. Mm. And that's what he's carrying. Mm. And yeah, Samuel is going to lead that shift into now monarchy, having a king, and a priest. Mm. Now, a king, it also gets a bit confusing because sometimes the kings had priestly duties, but it was meant to be separate. So yeah. you had a king and you had the priest who would mm-hmm. serve because if you read some of the kings, some of them try to offer sacrifice. Like, ah, oh, you can't do that. That's the yeah. priest's job. I mean, that's know. part of Saul's downfall, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, so that that's where Israel is at. It's in this transition period. Samuel is the last of the judges, last of those sort of military-style yeah. rulers over Yeah. 
because <laughs> it's hard to know if Samuel's ruling over all Israel or over like a tribal kind sure. of part. Because what says Israel, yeah. we don't know if it's everyone because yeah. we know that David's one of the first to bring all the tribes together sure. under yeah, yeah, yeah. kingship. So sometimes the judges do that. They kind of will describe all Israel, but actually it's a, a region yeah. of Israel in the region sure. that Samuel's in, Shiloh. So yeah. that's really, that's what Samuel's doing. It's yeah. for those sort of... 30, 40 years that he's mm. uh, a judge over Israel. Mm. He is there and that transitional marker. And mm. the text, and it's kind of jumping into like next uh, banter sort of, yeah, but yeah. Um, throughout the narrative, we see the Israelites are defeated in 1 Samuel 4. The, the ark is taken yeah. into exile, but Yahweh's still victorious over the Philistines. He yeah. brings lots of curses upon them. The yeah. ark returns. The Philistines lead this big battle in 1 Samuel chapter, one Samuel, yeah, Samuel chapter 7, and there Samuel takes on a mosaic kind of persona of being the one to pray. Yeah. He, rule, he leads Israel by prayer. Not yeah. by fighting directly, and Yahweh does the fighting, and yeah. so, so setting up, I guess, tensions that we see in Scripture of like they need a they need a king. Mm. Judges identifies that. Samuel is anticipating that, but when they do ask for a king, it's like mm, this is bad because it's a king. They want to look like the other nations around them. They don't want <laughs> yeah. a king yeah. that's like a king that God wants. Yeah. So there's mm. this sort of. Um, so Samuel's leading him in a way saying, hey, this is what's kind of meant to be. You're meant to have a, a ultimately God is the one in charge. We're meant to have like a leader yeah. who has this prophetic, judgely, if that's a word, <laughs> judging role, sure. probably. Yeah, judging, we'll say. <laughs> yeah. Judging role that leads the Israelites in a way and like letting God yeah. fight your battles. And so, yeah. yeah. And also, too, it's a shift between little tribal pockets that are quite independent mm. to falling under a monarchy. So mm. in a way, Judges is described as the canonization of Israel. Mm. That's how like one of my lecturers described it. Yeah. It's like as you read the narrative, they become increasingly Canaanite yeah. in a sense. By becoming a monarchy, Israel becomes increasingly Egyptian. Yeah. And um, that's what um yeah, Samuel warns them about like don't get a king he's gonna get chariots and yeah <laughs> make yeah. slaves out of you and it's gonna be a miserable yeah experience and so yeah, yeah it's that yeah subtle rebuke throughout it's like wow well, yeah if you're just obedient yeah you won't go into exile you won't suffer consequences you'll be victorious god will protect you from your enemies yeah but you want to be like everyone else this is what's going to happen yeah well yeah it's not only the slaves even just that language of chariots i can't help but think of pharaoh's chariots yeah, well, like that the whole think, thing yeah. is sort of you know pointing towards that yeah. that pharaoh no not pharaoh's sake pharaoh like yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a different one yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's pharaoh's. um so i suppose in all of this i'm seeing samuel here <laughs> as i don't want to say perfect but as a really good judge. Yes. Like as sort of like maybe how judges were supposed to be. And mm. yet just when things are actually starting to look good, um, Israel, or at least maybe yeah. a small part of Israel yeah. that Samuel is overseeing, yeah. 
wants something else. And it's quite interesting. I just find it striking that, you know, I feel like they've gone through this, you know, just tumultuous, you know, downward spiral Mm. of the story of judges where it's Mm -hmm. just, you know, and finally kind of comes out the other side. I sort of wonder, I feel like there's so much for us as modern day Christians to sort of learn about this, about sort of, you know, trusting, you know, God's Mm. journey. And I feel like so often we can step in just before, you know, God is actually finishing Mm. something and completing, try and do things in our own strength. I feel like there's a lot to say about maybe looking at another church even like hey like we want to be like that church over there and it's like well actually like that's not the thing that like defines you (laughs) you know and that is obviously a flawed analogy because that's suggesting that Mm -hmm. maybe something another church is doing is wrong and you know not under christ but i think there is this desire to mirror other communities and other cultures that god doesn't actually have planned for us and then i have this really striking like thing in all of this as well that there is sort of this this priesthood which has shown time and time again to be incorrect and god is is allowing sort of something new to happen mm. in that as well he's sort of once again recognizing hey okay that that season hasn't worked he's he's something new mm. for samuel to then bring into and it almost seems like the people of israel or this group sort of stop God's plan in his tracks a bit. Mm. And as we see very few times in scripture, like God kind of repents, changes his mind, allows the people to have what they ask for rather than what is God's will, which is pretty striking. It is. And that's a tension the Old Testament has a lot. And if you're a a black and white Christian, you'll go, well, that was always God's will for that to happen. Hmm. But it's not actually how the text presents it. Yeah. We have to go back to the text, not to some theological framework that makes us feel comfortable. (laughs) We need to allow scripture to interpret scripture, not Calvin to interpret scripture. Yeah, yeah. And and there is, there is some deeply, actually it's one of the books I'm reading right now about God and natural disasters just for funsies, you know, that's what you do in your spare time. But, um, yeah, and not not do natural disasters. Read about natural. But read disasters. about like how, yeah. how like a yeah, theology yeah. of like how yeah. does a good God allow natural disasters in the sure. world? Sure, great question. Yeah, because moral evil we can understand. It's like oh yeah, like Nazi Germany that was people. But yeah. when it's a tsunami, it's like mm, like yeah. whose fault's that? And yeah. So anyway, but um, there was a point why I mentioned oh yeah about how God like some sometimes it seemed like His plans mm. are changed because of human action. Like. Mm, and there's no sort of simple answer to that, which is, I think, disappointing for some people. Like, mm, I don't know. Like, yeah. in just before Noah's flood, it's like the Lord regretted he'd made humans. You're yeah. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, yeah. does that mean, like, we should never happen? Does it mean, is it, some people would say, oh, it's a way for the text to just kind of anthropomorphize, which is a fancy way of saying giving human characteristics to God so he can understand. Like, there's yeah. even Moses. Like he's praying, he's like, well, if you destroy them and start with me, the nations will say, ah, see, their God's not that powerful. And it's like, okay, I won't do it. And even to an extent, judgment, um, Nineveh, classic example, 40 days of Nineveh shall be destroyed, then they repent. And so the sense that, I say it's very careful, the future is a little open in in the sense that that if there's a, we don't know like what the, course of human history is and that's how the old testament presents it so you have a choice here you can choose to have life or you can choose not to yeah i wouldn't go as far as an open theist which says that god doesn't know the future sure i don't think that that's like 
can go, we have a God that, well, Paul even says that we were predestined for the creation of the world. But yeah, yeah it's a tension that the Old Testament in particular yeah. brings up. It's like sometimes people do things and God's like, okay, I'm going to, yeah, it's not what I wanted, but yeah. I'll allow it. <laughs> I sort of think of the difference between us being a literal pawn on a chessboard yes. that God's just moving around <laughs> and we have literally zero agency. Mm. And when I used to play rugby with a team where the captain had literally played for like the Waratahs under 16s and he was just amazing and he like would call all the shots and then he'd like pretty much run the ball almost all the way to the try line and like pass it to you (laughs) so you could score a try now and again. Now that didn't stop me from fumbling the ball and, you know, forward passing it and getting tackled and pushed back Mm. sometimes. Um, and then, yeah, you know, I could have also just done a really stupid move and decided to go for a grubber kick and completely yeah. screwed up. Or I could, like, take that ball that he'd passed me and, you know, score the try kind of for the team. And this idea of, you know, God definitely not just being a peer in the mm. team, yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, inviting us into yeah. a, some sort of partnership mm. and still having a very clear plan in, in his head yes. and still having a very clear desire for how he wants us to engage in that plan, but ultimately still giving us the agency and free will to yeah. one, screw up, <laughs> two, do things slightly differently, yeah. or three, like follow his plan and ultimately that's going to yeah. be the best <laughs> result. Yeah. And I guess that's part of humans being created in the image of God. God could have just populated the earth yeah. without us. Yeah. And so since that we're created and we're tasked with fulfilling a role. Yeah. It's not God who populates the earth directly. It's yeah. us as humans. Yeah. And so we're the ones that are building cities and we're the ones that Yeah. Yeah, so there is this partnership which mm. Yeah. And kind of like going back into Samuel, like how but in at times we do see God directing events mm. so that's one thing Old Testament narrative God is often the unseen background character so you meant to read the narrative and go oh yeah like God was there mm. he's the one who closed up Hannah's womb he's the one who allowed Eli to be there at that moment he like everything that happens is not meant to be random you meant to see it as like God's sort of mm. there mm. but at the same time too he said humans aren't just pawns on yeah, chess piece. And I think that's a really insightful and profound way in which the way in which God is presented in the Bible mm. should be then showing and revealing to us how we are to view him working in our lives. Mm. That on the surface level, a lot of the time it's not so blatantly mm. obvious. Um, but the reality is, is when we take a moment to actually meditate and, and listen to the spirit and be figuring out how God is working in this moment and sometimes maybe not be able to fully understand, but trust that he is, that that is actually aligned with the way that God has interacted with his people Mm. for the overwhelming majority of the Bible. And as you said, when God like actually physically speaks an audible voice to Samuel, it's a terrifying and confusing thing. Like, but that is a, um, an outlier Mm. and it can happen for sure. But overwhelmingly we see, you know, this, this idea of needing to, look for God mm. as, as a continuous, consistent, divine thread mm. in the narrative mm. of both scripture and our own lives. Yeah, and that's what, um, So this book I've been reading, it's written by a guy called Terence Friedheim. And Friedheim, he has a chapter on prayer. Mm. And he says, often when a natural disaster strikes, we 
Yeah, he goes, not like when we pray, we're often praying for people to find comfort. Like very few Christians are there praying to stop the tsunami or the earthquake or like it's not like it halts in its tracks. And he says, oh, some people wonder what's the purpose of prayer. I like the analogy. He said prayer is like a weaving. God's mm. like weaving that prayer into mm. this blanket of mm. life. And mm. perhaps we don't see where those stitches are going. But yeah. it's, he's saying like we have to pray like the Bible presents God as acting on people's prayers. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, oh well, don't bother praying because God's foreordained everything. So there's no point. It's like, yeah. well, God actually acts on prayers. Yeah. Needs it. And I like that analogy. It's fine, helpful. Like weaving a blanket. It's like yeah. you might not see it, yeah. but it's there doing yeah. something. Yeah, the, the thread might even sort of vanish at moments yeah. as it goes behind on yeah. the other side. And yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. I love that analogy. In in that heart of prayer, mm. um, I want to spend just a moment talking about um, the significance that music and singing and songs plays throughout the book of Samuel. I mean, yeah. you know, King David eventually, yeah. you know, wrote half the Psalms almost. Yeah. Um, music is obviously seen to have a profound influence in mm. in these chapters with Hannah's song. Yeah. We've seen it a little bit previously in Scripture. I think of as the Israelites part through the Red Sea and come out the other side, and and Moses and Miriam's songs of rejoicing. Mm. But it seems to really take a bit more of a center central role in the Book yeah. of Samuel. It's quite interesting. We see, you know, I think, I I don't know sort of what, you know, ancient uh, Middle Eastern thought was about the um, sort of tender-hearted artistic type. But once again, not necessarily the the sort of military leader that you think of, you know, this sort of artsy guy playing his lute on the side. Yeah, well, even um, uh, David, he plays a harp for Saul to, like, soothe him of his tormenting spirit yeah there's a sense of like and they recognize like, oh i need someone to play the harp to like get rid of this evil spirit yeah and, um yeah and then david when the um tabernacle comes in jerusalem he's there like dancing like yeah. a maniac yeah and, yeah yeah and nicole his first wife's like disgusted by his yeah, yeah you've embarrassed me yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. he's there he's like ah, i'll do it even more like yeah, i don't yeah, care yeah. like i'm yeah. gonna dance my heart out so yeah, it, it, I think it's just showing the importance of music mm. in that. Yeah, I think I said it before, whenever in a narrative there's a song, it sets up some themes mm. for that narrative. And yeah. Yeah, it's no accident that Samuel begins with a song and towards the end, not quite the end of 2 Samuel, but yeah, there's um one of the last chapters, David's words, you know, singing another song, the Lord is my rock, my fortress mm. and my deliverer. And mm. it's similar-ish language to what Hannah uses. You know, there is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. So mm. this, well, it's like the book sort of bookended by these songs about God's certainty, yeah. God being a rock, a yeah. foundation, unmovable, unchangeable. Yeah. And yeah, th- those themes that come up about mm. the proud being brought low, lowly being lifted up. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yes important part for understanding how yeah. this book works is like that David the man after God's own heart isn't perfect yeah and when I was a kid I thought his only sin was Bathsheba you actually read there's actually a lot more that David yeah. did that was like in some ways yeah I find it interesting that Saul loses the crown over what I see quite a minor it kind of yeah I'm like yeah the difference is David repents so Bathsheba yeah. was pretty horrific what he did to Bathsheba one and Uriah yeah but when Nathan tells him, you are the man, he's yeah. like, yep, 
I am. Yeah. And he writes Psalm 51 and yeah. he repents. And that's the key difference is Saul never actually repents. So Saul feels like remorse. Yeah. More like, you know, someone gets caught, they're like, more sorry that they were caught sure. than actually sorry for the, yeah. And I think that's the key difference you see with yeah. like David and mm. these more godly characters and themselves aren't mm. perfect, but they know mm. how to repent. It's interesting enough, Samuel is, it's um, Ezekiel. He says if, was it Daniel, Samuel and someone else were there? I would not, Job, I think it's one of them. I have to mm. Google a verse. I would not turn and like, mm. I would still destroy, destroy this, this city. Like like some 500 years later, Samuel's still yeah, yeah, yeah. being remembered for being this righteous. Yeah. I find it up. Yeah. No, like, I mean, look, I think that there's something really, um, I think a helpful reminder for us today because I, I think that the Bible calls us to sing a new song to the Lord. So there are those, um, uh, that tension that we understand that um, worship songs today can sometimes be flawed and not have perfect mm. theology. But I just know that for me personally, there's been moments of holding on to the promise of a really powerful worship song, um, having, yeah, that, that really powerful influence in me. Um, I need to be careful and recognize that I really appreciate music and enjoy music and, and mm. singing and, and playing music isn't everyone's cup of tea. So it's about finding your own spiritual practices. Yeah. And um, I know that there are some people who come to church on Sunday and they're waiting for the worship to <laughs> end because singing isn't their thing. Yeah. Like putting their hands up in worship isn't their thing. Um, as we've said before, I think always encouraging people to step outside their comfort zone to try new things mm. and, and stretch themselves and grow in spiritual practice and worship. Um, but I think the, you know, um, the ability that music and worship has to lead us into moments of rejoice, of repentance, of lament. You know, we spoke about before how Jeremiah sort of offers a theology of lament. I feel like in some ways, you know, a lot of David's life offers us a theology of repent, you know. Yes. Um, but sorry, did you find that I did. It's first? Jeremiah 15.1. It says, even if Moses and Samuel to stand before me. My heart would not go out to these people. So, mm. that's, so that's a pretty like, good summary of Samuel's life yeah. It's yeah. compared with Moses. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't get much better in, in Torah <laughs> than yeah. compared to Moses. So good. Look, as we kind of finish, um, yeah, our little journey in 1 and 2, uh, well, sorry, 1 Samuel 1 and 2, um, what are sort of, you know, our little takeaways that you'd like us mm. to really hold on to leaving these chapters? Um, probably the biggest one is that Pain has a purpose. Um, mm. So Hannah is uh, a barren woman from a pretty small little backward village from mm. a non-elite family that's not going to transform the world. And her pain is used to bring about a beautiful prayer of how we should approach pain in our life or pouring our heart out to God in such a way that yeah Eli thinks that she's drunk like mm. particularly in society it probably didn't really pray silently like we just see this like she doesn't turn to anyone else but turns to the Lord interesting makes a vow which yeah um, I was always taught don't do that but we see here mm. with Hannah she yeah. makes this vow and is, sticks to it and I think that's important too that gives us a model for prayer for yeah if we do offer something to God to fulfill that yeah. Um, Ecclesiastes says, you know, hey, don't make a vow and don't fulfill. It's better not to make a yeah. vow than to make one and not f live it out. And so that was yeah. 
that was a huge thing for her. Like she didn't know she was going to have a kid. Yeah. This might have been her only kid, and yeah. she gives him up to the Lord. Yeah. And so we see that like just this heart, a sacrificial love, and and yeah. we're getting a sign into Elkanah too. The dude must have really respected Hannah. Like he must have loved her. She's yeah. like, hey, like I'm gonna give my boy. We're gonna give our yeah. boy up. And he's yeah. like, okay, you do it. You seems right. Like yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a um, there's an agency there. So we see even yeah. in Elkanah who. Yeah, look, he says something dumb. Hey, Hannah, aren't I worth more to you than 10 sons? Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. But, like, the guy, yeah, must have trusted Hannah a yeah. lot, which shows a lot about their marriage and their relationship. Mm. And in a society where, yeah, very patriarchal, yeah. Like, like, Hannah has a voice. She's not yeah. shut down completely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's that part too. And then looking at how, like, in thinking about Jesus, that's what, like, when Mary's called to give birth to Jesus, in a sense, it brought potentially great shame and risk to her we yeah. probably don't focus on that because yeah. elizabeth praises her so much but yeah. yeah there's just little hints throughout the gospels and matthew's gospel in particular because that's luke's version when we see elizabeth but matthew yeah. like when he presents joseph joseph yeah divorcing her yeah and it's like yeah like you know it would have brought disgrace upon joseph to yeah be, yeah i have a joseph seen as like sleeping with someone before they're married or he marries an adulteress and it's in Mark, I think it's Mark 6, where someone's like, isn't this Mary's son? Yeah. Like, it's pretty meant to be derogatory. Like, you don't yeah. identify a son by their mother. Yeah. There's a sense of, like, always someone who's a bit suspicious about yeah. Jesus. They never fully yeah. trusted Mary. So there's, since I too, like, both women carry the shame of, yeah, yeah barrenness, unusual pregnancies, and yeah. are both willing to give up their firstborns yeah. for greater purposes. And so we don't really know what Hannah and Samuel's relationship was like. But mm. yeah, she gives up her firstborn so he can serve Yahweh and lead the people. Since Mary gives up her son on the cross. And yep. like in John's account, yeah, we're given a bit more insight into what that is. And even Jesus, when he's crucified, tells John the apostle, hey, like, yeah. look after her. So yeah. recognizing that he can't do the role of a firstborn yeah. son anymore. So. Yeah, I think for us in, in landing that is recognizing that our pain does have a purpose, and we might not see that. And using mm-hmm. that, like our, like the analogy of a weaving, our prayers like God weaving in a blanket, and perhaps that mm. stitch will never be seen. But we know we don't worship a God that's indifferent, mm. and we might worship a silent, behind-the-scenes God who we may not be seeing in thunder and lightning and huge dramatic moments, but God is there present always and so mm. that's what i draw from this is that there's no accident mm. in life mm. and that might leave us more questions and answers and unanswered prayer and sitting with lots of tension but hannah's song is yeah it's cosmic she yeah her she's singing a song of victory mm. even if she wasn't sure that mm. was going to happen mm. or not and that's for us is like well we know that yeah, the Lord will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And then for us as Christians, he will give strength to his king, which we know is Jesus, and exalt the horn of his anointing. So the horn is a sign of strength. Mm. So it's that, though. okay, I might not understand what's going on right now, but Hannah's song can be a song of, I like this term from Richard Beck, a song of resistance. Mm. We're actually singing to resist against what? life is doing the, yeah. the, the challenges the evils and by singing we're actually in a sense saying no we're not letting 
evil win. We're not letting yeah, sin overcome. Yeah. God will overcome. And so we may not see that now, but we will see that. Yeah. And so that's why, yeah, I guess singing in church is so important. Because for us, yeah. we're actually singing a sense of eschatologically. Mm. Fancy way of just saying for the end, for Jesus yeah. to return. We're rewriting the present with a future yep. hope. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Hope. Yeah. So good. My takeaways for Samuel. Love that. Well, um, yeah, we'll uh, end it there and we'll, uh, yeah, look forward to unpacking the, the next uh, passage in yeah. Samuel as we jump through it at a break next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, Thanks, guys. everyone. See ya. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.